Welcome to Pansa Pansa Live Podcast. Um, we are now releasing our fifth episode. I'm so happy to be releasing all this episode and focusing on important um, issue within African immigrant community. In this episode, we are honored to have a special guest, Ms. Awa Ojaifo. Ms. Ojaifo is the founder of She Rights Woman, a nonprofit organization focusing on educating and advocating for people living with mental illness in Nigeria. Our organization's mission is to eradicate the stigma placed on people with mental health or I mean mental illness. Ms. Ojaifo is a mental health advocate, a coach, a role model for young men and women in Nigeria, and I believe throughout the diaspora in Africa, hopefully among even Africans living abroad. So she's actually an excellent example of someone who was diagnosed with mental illness, and she's thriving, blooming, and prospering. She continues to use her experience to help others who are suffering from mental illness and promoting mental health awareness and also um, advising people who might need certain services whereby she provides within our organization. So I hope you listen to this episode very well, and I hope you share it among other members of our community because we need to continue to focus on discussing uncomfortable conversation within our community. And um, and please, you know, you could also go on our website to see the wonderful work she's doing in Nigeria, and if possible, f- support She Writes Woman both financially as well as uh, I, I believe sometimes you could just send um, an email to actually uh, continue to empower and encourage this kind of service. So I will call it selfless service uh, uh, for our people back home. So there's two parts to this episode. There's part one as well as part two because I get to um, engage in conversation whereby I don't like to cut it short I, I really love to explore more information and to give the audience very authentic information about the discussion we may be having. So sometimes it may be long. If you listen to the first part of it, you could turn it off and then come back and listen to the rest. But I think it would be a very useful episode for members of our community. Thank you. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Panza Panza Forum. In the Yoruba language, the word panza is usually injected into poetry to express an uncomfortable, uncensored, and inconvenient truth. The Panza Panza Forum is candid conversations about the life of African immigrants in America as it relates to their adaptation to their new home. While some may find it easy to integrate and can balance between retaining the original African culture while accepting the culture of their new home, many continue to struggle to find a balance between both worlds. Hello and welcome to Panza Panza Live. This is a podcast where we discuss the lives of African immigrants and their assimilation into Western society as they raise younger generations in a country that is quite different from their own. We also explore the experiences of children of immigrants as they balance the African and Western cultures. I am your host, 
Baba, and together with the founder of Panza Panza and my co-host, Ms. Kemi Sariki, we present to you this informative, interesting, and expansive dialogue about the intricate experiences of African immigrants in America. Welcome to Pansa Pansa Live Podcast. I am your host, Kemi Seriki, and today we are honored to have a special guest all the way from Nigeria, Ms. Awa Ojeifo. Ms. Ojeifo is a former investment banker, now founder of She Rights Woman, a nonprofit organization focusing on educating and advocating for people living with mental illness in Nigeria. Our organization's mission is to eradicate the stigma placed on people with mental illness. Ms. Ojaifo is a mental health advocate, a coach, a role model for young men and women in Nigeria and throughout the diaspora, I believe. And hopefully she will also be a role model for Africans living abroad. I want to thank you for hanging out with me this morning. I'm looking forward to this great conversation. Pansa Pansa is an organization where we talk about uncomfortable conversation within African immigrant community. Because uh, in many cases, as you know, even back home, we tend to sweep a lot of things under the rug. We don't want to talk about things. We want to appear that everything is perfect, whereby we're going through so much trauma, so much challenges and that we don't like to talk about. So that's why this platform is created. To let you know, I came across your name, actually through CNN article that came out through social media. And I was so moved by your honesty, by your dedication to mental health and mental illness in Nigeria, by you actually putting your story out there to actually use it as a way to educate other people, as well as people globally as well. Because, you know, it takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of, for humanity of others, to indicate that, listen, you know, I'm willing to tell my story so that I could help others with the situation when it comes to mental illness. So I just want to actually ask you, even though I said all these things, if you can fully introduce yourself, talk a little bit about your background, to member of our audience of Pansa Pansa Forum. Thank you so, so much. I really hope that, you know, my audio quality will be good enough with all the interference happening yes. around me. In my yes. But thank you very much for having me and for all the kind things that you've said about my, me and the work that I do. I am Hawa Ojefo and I'm the executive director at She Writes Woman. Mm-hmm. And we are a movement, so we like to call ourselves a movement that gives mental health a voice in Nigeria by empowering people who actually live with mental health conditions to tell their own stories, to co-create their own solutions, and to advocate for their own rights. We're doing all of this by creating safe spaces for people to tell their stories, shame and judgment-free spaces. We are also trying to empower people to tell their stories by telling our own stories. Mm -hmm. So that's why over the years I have built almost like a mental or emotional muscle in telling my story so easily in quotes what comes across as large groups of people to the media you know internationally locally through written content audio content you know visual content as well across the board and that's really about ensuring that 
you know, persons with lived experience have a space for their own stories in the midst of all the global consciousness around mental health. Yes. You know, as people get more conscious around mental health, everybody gets passionate. It's something that affects everybody. What I think happen a lot of the time is that we tend to forget that the people who actually have the lived experience need to be the ones leading the conversation, you know, when it comes to that directly affect them. Yes. So that is what we do actually rights women. We do it across legislative and policy advocacy. Like last year, we had a grand, sort of like a groundbreaking appearance at the National Assembly here in Nigeria, wow. where I, as the first person with a mental health condition to testify before the Nigerian Senate yes. on the rights of yes. with mental health conditions and urging legislators to really prioritize mental health legislation but not just about that but ensuring that the mental health legislation is in accordance with global or international human rights standards Another part of our work is what we call safe place nigeria where we're trying to make mental health accessible to everyday nigerians yes. by technology for example yes so we run the 24-7 toll-free helpline we also run teletherapy which is yes. free and then community, uh, very, very cheap actually, where people can get access to counsellors and therapists and a community of people just like them, where they are given self-care, resources, storytelling. Wow. I'm really, really impressed by so much services that you're providing because you need an award. (laughs) You need a global award and recognition for what you're doing because I'm really impressed that you use your story as a gateway to educate others, even not only the younger generation in Nigeria, also the government, the people in power. Because this is a society whereby mental health was not something that is being talked about. I wouldn't even believe there's too much of any diagnosis going on in Nigeria, whereby there's a limited resources when it comes to psychiatric services, when it comes to even qualified therapists to be able to provide those kind of services in Nigeria. And for you to actually use your own story to galvanize all these services is actually so impressive. So I want to find out, why did you choose the name She Writes Woman? So when I started She Writes Woman mm-hmm. in 2015, officially we became an organization in 2016, but She Writes Woman was previously a blog before yeah. it became an organization. I mean, it was so spontaneous. I think sometimes when people ask me this question, maybe they're expecting like this very fancy answer. I'm like, yeah. actually, it was not, nothing really big. It was just a simple thing. So what happened was I was thinking about the idea of the blog and it was with a friend of mine then. And we're just thinking, and we came up with all of these silly names that we wanted to write blogs and just tell stories and things. She was more like just a general storyteller. Yes. I wanted to write stories that were very personal to my own experience or the experiences of the people around me. Yes. And so one morning I just woke up and I was like, you know what? This makes sense. It makes sense that this issue writes women because it is reflecting the stories of women by women. Mm-hmm. And that was what stuck for us. It was about how can we express the experience of women from the perspective, from the lens of actual women. If we just look back historically, women have always been told how to do things, how to approach things, Mm -hmm. things that happen to you, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. 
in this particular case, what we were trying to do was like, you know what, let us be the ones to tell our own stories and let us also be the ones to, you know, dissect what yeah. works in, yeah. in a woman's face and that yeah. type of thing. But that yeah. was when we're just a blog. But then yeah. over that year, between 2015 and 2016, you know, I had always had this desire that I wanted the blog to be this one thing. So we were writing about almost everything, workplace, you know, we were writing about family, writing about relationships, different things. I really wanted it to have one direction. And that, that year was the year that was quite defining for me as a person with my own mental health journey. And it just was that light bulb for me that I think this is where I want to take the direction of this blog. And, so, and then from that blog, it became this thing that was on social media that I would write, you know, this you know, post and put out content every single day. And before we knew it, it was like the momentum started gathering and that's where the movement started coming. It's like things started moving. I made the movement and other people joined me and we all started making moves and we were attracting other people here and there. So that's really what the name, and the name, the name has stuck. It's not that we are only focused on women. It's just yes. that women yes. are our major priority. Yes. And it's not yes. something that is completely an emotional decision. It is also rooted in fact. Um, because we have studies as early as the 2018 when WHO did a, a research that showed yeah. that when the burden of mental health is significantly reduced in women or it is eliminated in women, it drastically reduces the global burden of health and mental health across the world. Yes. So for us, yes. it's also about the fact that if we're able to focus on women and even if we just make, you know, 5% change in Nigeria or globally, that will significantly reduce the global burden of mental health. From both ends, it makes sense. It makes sense. And you are so right about that because when you look at Nigerian family setting, women are the ones who bear the brunt of the burden of what goes on in that society. And it's part of the most important education that has to take place on the continent of Africa in itself, in Nigeria, bringing this kind of story up front. And being a person who is educating the masses of people in Nigeria about the issue of mental illness, mental health, as well as the diagnosis. Well, I want to ask you also, does your organization provide information in educating public about the signs of mental illness in children and as well as in adults? First, thank you. And uh, of course, that's a very, very valid question. So across our social media, what we try to do is talk about topical issues and contemporary issues. Topical issues, depending on what's going on, you know, in the environment at the moment. And then contemporary issues are things that, you know, over time, they still stay relevant. It morphs, but it's still on the line across the board. So we're still a country, I like to say that we're still a country where it's either we're unaware or we're underaware. When it comes to mental health, because there is a, a whole lot of information gap, you know, even those of us, a lot of people who feel like, oh, I know mental health very well, tend to actually be very underaware around yeah. mental like they know something yeah. but maybe they don't know them very well or they don't know them to a good extent you know things yes. like that so that is that so a lot of our social media content across our instagram facebook and twitter which is at she writes woman is really geared towards making mental health content more relatable you yeah. know whether we're using yeah. storytelling or we're using you know third-party stories as well or graphics around you know what are the signs to look out for these are ways that this may 
this behavior could mean this and things like that. Just really getting people to look inward, you know, both for children and adults is definitely something that we do. However, one of the things that we have also realized is that there is so much content out with regards to mental health, which is all things that have to do with what is mental health, what are the signs and symptoms to look out for, what are the common mental illnesses, you know, things like that. have that all over Google, like just a Google search and you would have tons and tons of content. What we don't have enough of, which is what she writes, well, that has been our approach over the last five years, is really about how can we use lived experience to reinforce, you know, those things that are already on Google and the rest. Yes. You know, so whether it is getting people like our clients that are people who have called the helpline or people who have had therapy or people who belong to our close community, you know, using bits and pieces of their stories or our stories as myself or people within the team to buttress what it means, you know, is affecting your work. What does that look like? So when we start saying things like that, people are like, what are you even talking about? What is even trauma? And Mm -hmm. how do those things experiences that you've had as maybe a child how do they grow up with yes. you how yes. do they interfere yes. what are common things tend to happen by the time people faces to such kinds of statistics or data mm-hmm. or academic sounding things it becomes more relatable it becomes more yes. human so yes. people are able to internalize that bit of information more quickly and easily, easily. and they're more likely action based on that bit of information as well so we do that across our social media we also do it across like media as well sometimes we're on like primetime news or you know we are on the radio or writing for blogs local and international as well just like you found the story on cnn it's really about how can we humanize stories not just stories yeah is this one in four people blah 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 i mean that's all good in terms of yeah 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 that doesn't appeal to an individual per se you know what moved you was you saw something that somebody had put a face to and a voice Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it was more relatable and then it's gave you the need to take a certain kind of action Action, and that's what we try to do so whether that information is for children's mental health or whether it's for adult mental health you know we have that information a lot of time it's so important for what you say that you could easily google things and then be able to find those information online because one thing that i found that with treatment when it comes to mental illness sometimes there's interchangeably kind of um definition there's a difference between mental illness and mental health. Mental illness meaning that somebody already been diagnosed and is already right there that this person actually need treatment. Then the mental health is about education and prevention, understanding what mental health and mental illness is all about. Let me just add a little bit mm-hmm. regarding that. So it's something that we've had to do a lot of work around with regards to the fact that the moment you say mental health, yes, we have yes. been conditioned to think Illness. illness. You know, it's a conditioning. We don't know where we got it from a lot of times once we sit down and really yes. think. Yes. You know, we realize that we watched it in the Nollywood movies that we watched when we were growing up. Mm-hmm. We saw it in our environment. Yes. We saw the language. We read the language in the news. We heard it as jokes in stand-up yes. comedy shows. Yes. All of those things came together to what we what comes to our subconscious once we say yes. mental health. Yes. But 
mental health is what everybody has. And it's so important that when we're having that bit of conversation, that we're ensuring that we're inclusive of the language that we're using. Because the moment we say mental illness, and that's a language that we abolished as she writes women since yes. 2018, we don't longer say mental illness, not only because we realize strategically that it excludes a huge number of people, mm-hmm. but it is no longer politically correct to say mental illness in the disability right space because now mental health conditions which is not what we say the definitions have changed in line with global best practice and from a human rights perspective but my point really is that you know mental health is what everybody has Yes. You know, what people yes. consider to be like mental illness is really more, you know, mental health conditions, different kinds of conditions. Yes. You know, the labels yes. that we hear, the depression and the anxiety disorder or the bipolar or the schizophrenia, you know, and you generalize this and that and that and that. You know, all of those labels is typically what people are referring to when you're talking about mental health conditions or like you said, mental illness. But the thing is, whenever we're doing advocacy, and of course this is for anyone that's listening as well, it's so important that we are inclusive of that conversation, especially in an environment like people are yet to fully grasp the basic understanding of what mental health is. Because if you're trying to get people to grasp something and by virtue of the language you are using, you're already telling them that maybe you're not a part of a population, maybe it's not about you. You know, because the moment you say mental illness to people, people switch off because I don't, I, nobody wants to say I have mental illness. I don't have mental illness. Yeah, so, so that's not for me. Yeah. And all, it's all these people. Yeah. I don't know if suddenly the conversation goes yeah. from yeah. them yeah. to yeah. us. Instead of us, us when we're talking yeah. about mental health yeah. and illness, we make the conversation about us. Oh, because this is me, to you, to yeah. all yeah. of us. We know what it's yeah. like to be stressed or anxious yeah. or blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But the moment you say mental illness in this environment, the conversation begins to shift because on an internal level, we don't want to be associated with the image that we have been conditioned to think about when we hear the word mental illness. We don't want to be associated with the man on the street or the woman on the street who is sitting on the ground and going through like all those dust bean piles and everything. That's the image that we have around mental illness, you know. But the moment we start to introduce it with mental health, we're able to at least first get people to understand that mental health is something that everybody has, you know, just like a physical health and a mental health. And then we can now begin to go into like, ways that everybody can take care of their mental health and ways that if you haven't taken care of your mental health over the years, these are perhaps some of the things you might be dealing with at the moment and all of that. And these are popularly called mental health conditions, namely depression, anxiety, and you know, all of those things. So I think it's always very interesting for us to dissect that That sort of like separation and the consequences of using that language Language. on the people that we are trying to get on board. Get on board, Uh, which is so important because even in America here, when we're talking about mental health and mental illness, we deal with the issue of race in America between white and black, rich and poor, there's so much treatment and availability of service for people with mental health and mental illness. And uh, the stigma is, is much more profound among people of color in this country. Also among, not to talk about the African immigrant community in itself. So as a result of that, even when it comes to treatment of mental illness, when it comes to 
actually providing service, there's a cultural sensitivity that comes with it, whereby let's assume somebody is being diagnosed with certain mental illness, like maybe bipolar or major depression, and you have to receive service. Maybe since psychiatrists may not be too much of any problem, but when you have to talk to a therapist where that person cannot even relate to you culturally, they cannot even relate to some of the struggle that you go through, then it becomes something that you pull back a little bit and said, I don't really think this service is working for me. And the person who actually also provided that service does not understand your struggle. That's what we're dealing with in America, does not really understand your struggle because many of the people who are providing maybe psychiatric health services in America or Therapies, just like uh, you have uh, people who are therapists, they are providing those services are mostly white. So it becomes something that you don't even want to dig into. The stigma behind it and the person that lack of that kind of um, your cultural differences actually debar the kind of service that you're going to receive or that you feel like you are getting from that person. Because if I'm sitting across a white person and talking about issue of that, what I'm going through as a person of color or as a person who comes from certain cultural background and that person does not actually understand the essence of my background culturally or my religious value, that could actually be a barrier to how I receive the service. But in terms of Nigeria, and I'm so happy that you understand that from what you've been telling me, in terms of anybody could go on YouTube or go on uh, Google and Google stuff and be able to say, okay, you know, this is what I think it is. But culturally, there has to be cultural sensitivity in providing service. So are you able to get all those services in Nigeria in terms of being able to train counselor who are going to be able to provide services for the population to be more sensitive in terms of religious sensitivity, culturally sensitive for the kind of service that they're going to get. The mental health landscape in Nigeria is being affected by lots of factors. So I think it would be disingenuous of me to say, oh, you know, we don't have certain things and just leave it at that. Do we have certain things? Um, Do we have counselors, therapists, psychiatrists in Nigeria? Absolutely. Do we have psychiatric hospitals in Nigeria? Yes, we do have government-owned psychiatric hospitals, federal um, neuropsychiatric hospitals, as they're called in Nigeria. We do have them. Are there more culture-specific sensitivities in Nigeria that these professionals have to take into consideration? Yes. Absolutely. Whether that is with regards to gender, because again, the gender expressions of mental health are different yes. biologically yes. and socially. Socially, yeah. We also need to consider religion because we are very religious people in yes. Nigeria. Yes. Then, of course, we also need to consider culture, of course, because we have varying languages and you know cultural mm-hmm. practices and perceptions mm-hmm. in Nigeria. So those are three core aspects. But it's also important that I bring in the issue of class as well because it cuts across everything that I've just mentioned. Yes, we do have a serious class issue because when you realize that first of the population, general population, you look at the fact that Nigeria is the poverty capital of the world. 
you have to first put that into context because you cannot talk about mental health, and I've done this for five years intensely. We cannot talk about mental health in Nigeria without talking about the poverty problem in Nigeria. And not just from a place of do, can people afford it? Because that is important. Can people really afford some of these services? That's on the one hand. Another thing is, do they have the awareness? Another thing is the professionals are products of the environment as well. What has poverty predisposed them to in terms of maybe charging for fees? or interacting with their clients, or bringing their religious or cultural biases that are very strong, by the way, into certain kinds of sessions, you know? So by and large, I think the overwhelming response to that is that Nigerian mental health professionals are not particularly at that place where biases don't interfere with sessions. That's by and large, because when I say by and large, I really mean when we do a lot of social listening on social media. Mm-hmm. We're hearing more and more people mm-hmm. talk about their experiences with maybe their therapist or a counselor or a psychiatrist that, you know, did something that was shaming to them, maybe because of a particular culture preference or uh, even bringing issues of internalized misogyny into conversations like, oh, a woman, you know, a woman is a single mother and, you know, you're saying you don't want to marry. There was an issue online about it a couple of days ago and the counselor made a statement about that's going to affect your son. I hope you are aware of that. It's not, it shouldn't be about, you know, made a very, a statement that came across to the clients as very condescending and shaming. Yeah. And I assume it's true. Yeah. So the truth is we can expect that, oh, you guys are professionals, you should be able to like come out of all of these things. How? How? What's the level of education? We have a poverty problem. We have an education problem. Education. Yeah. So exactly where do you want this? Yeah. Yes, yes. yes amplified, holistic, premium, you know, modern, contemporary, progressive attitude and mindset from, you know, so it is a multi-layered issue and has different aspects that affect it. What I would say that we're doing at She Writes Woman is that we realize how big of a problem mental health is. And then we also, we are very honest about the fact that Nigeria has real systemic issues like what I've mentioned with regards to education, poverty, and social issues. So what we try to do is instead of trying to scale too quickly and be at every single part of Nigeria very quickly, we are trying to ensure that first off, we have just a handful of professionals that we can and trust yes. and that is just that over time whether we've used them they are on payroll so they have certain kinds of responsibilities and obligations their licenses or certifications are double checked yes. it is valid and then we put them on a salary what is happening a lot of times is that mental health professionals tend to be underpaid or yes. they are doing their work voluntary and yeah. quality of the work because I mean, you have to understand that just because you provide some healthcare service doesn't mean that you don't have bills to pay. Doesn't mean that you're not still in the same, you know, yes, 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 yes. You know, so as much as possible, we are trying to satisfy that bit so that we are doing our own part in setting them up for success. And then we invest a lot in internal processes as well. So yeah. whilst people yeah. use referrals all the time and people are building referral networks and things like that for people to receive care. I mean, we have some level of referral care um, system, but we're also very particular about being able to track 
the quality of care that people okay, are receiving. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of times people expect that, you know, I mean, you should know somebody in Zamfara. I'm like, yeah, I may know somebody in Zamfara, but can I attest to the quality of care that you're going to get from that person? Yeah. No, I can't. Mm-hmm. So what I can offer you instead is since our own services are digital, and you can access it digitally, I would rather call our helpline, 0800-800-2000, call that and speak to the counselor. And you can call that every single day or every week and speak to a counselor and keep going from there. Or you can access our teletherapy all from the computer. All from the computer, yes. All of that. So it's a big problem. And that's why we also have to do the systemic work in terms of policy change and legislative change, you know, and things like that. Nigeria is still struggling, like you said, the poverty rate is so high. And even when it comes to the number of psychiatrists for the population of over 200 million people, and then it comes in with also providing the medication, the availability of the medication for people who are in need of those services. It's such a huge systemic gap that we don't even see closing in another decade, if we're being very honest. Sadly, we don't see it because it requires, at the root of it, is a governance issue. And until Nigeria solves the governance issue, we don't particularly see sustained or sustainable change happening in the mental health. Yeah, we don't because, you know, when you have to live in a country where the poverty rate is so high, where people are trying as much as possible to make ends meet without government provision of services, ordinary electricity constantly, ordinary water for people to drink, for your children to excel and be able to at least have general education from kindergarten all the way to graduating high school is not even available. And all these things are actually coupled with what they will actually continue to stress, place so much stress on the society. Like I said, for me coming here, there's so many things I tend to question later on after getting here from some of the experience that I went through in Nigeria what people are actually going through in Nigeria and then coming here to see what is actually going on in this place and how people are being deprived of ordinary, common, standard living, providing adequate health care. Even in America here, we're still struggling with the adequate health care because we continue to complain when you come to minority neighborhood, when it comes to provision of services, it's kind of limited. Not to talk of a country whereby the government just don't even give a damn about what is going on. In a country whereby the government cannot even use their own service when it comes to having any physical health care that they needed being provided in their own country that they have to travel abroad for any medical emergency or medical care that they need. Even the president of a country of Nigeria cannot have adequate physical health care in Nigeria. He has to travel abroad to get a better health care. So what is happening to the masses of the people? What is happening to the lifespan of the people? When you have to struggle even to make ends meet, to be able to feed your children with three square meal a day is a struggle. All those things have an impact in people's mental health as well as mental illness, I would say. And I'm so impressed by what you've achieved so far from that short of time that you came out. And I know you're going to go in so many places. We might say you're focusing now on mental health and mental illness, but what you are actually going to push in Nigeria, from what I'm hearing from you, I think you're going to make a 
broader changes more than you even see yourself going. I'm really impressed for a few years that you started, how far you've grown. Because there's so many people, it's how you could galvanize people, you could move the people and say, you know what, you have to come to me. I will need to educate the masses in this country. Because there's so much going on in that country. When you are living in, a, in America here, let me even go back. They said one in four people actually suffer from mental illness. One in four. And they said, no matter what in your lifespan, you will suffer from mental health issue. But when you have growing up in a society that does not provide for average citizen, what is standard human survival is not there for them. It is so sad. How much more of the extensiveness of mental health issue that will be going on in that country? Even among the so-called the ruling class themselves. So I want to ask you, what are the best resources that have helped you through your journey? This is interesting. I believe the number one thing that has helped me in my journey is telling my story. Yes. It has been empowering. Mm -hmm. It has been such a release for me. It has been, you know, perhaps the most impactful part of my healing yes. has been telling my story. Yes. However, when people are listening to this, I don't want people to think, oh, okay, let me just go out there and start telling my story and all of that. Yes. No, please. There are real consequences of telling your story where there is overwhelming stigma. Yes. And as much as I want everybody to be empowered in their fullest selves, it would be a complete lack of wisdom to not take into consideration, you know, all the consequences by virtue of the environment that you yes. operate in. What I believe that for me, I had gotten to a place in my life where I felt like my life wasn't the most authentic version of me. And I was tired of living this life of people told me to do this. And then I woke up one morning and thought that all my decisions were mine when really I was channeling other people's decisions. Wow. I think that's one of that. <laughs> this is so, what you just said is so powerful. Let me let you know that what you just said, because this is what actually people have adopted in Nigeria mm. as the way they have to live. Mm. According to other people's vision, yeah. approval and you know yeah. what is still going on among nigerians in this country absolutely we've been so deeply conditioned to have certain people have authority over our lives that when they speak about us to us we don't realize when the voice in our head stops being ours but it becomes yes. theirs yes yes you know, you know for me it's like after all this it happens it's such a very small change and it's very subconscious and it's so little over time that it may take you up to 20, 30. Some people realize, wake up from it in their 40s and realize that, nope, this is not the life I always wanted to live. You know, and they have to start a journey to return to themselves. So I think for me, I'm just really grateful that I started that journey early enough. You know, I was barely 21, 22 when I started the journey of questioning, you know, like, is this really who I am? Is this where? Is this what I really want to do? Yes. Am I yes. doing this just to comply with parents or societal norms or things like or culture or something like that? I had to start asking those questions. 
And at the time I had my own mental health breakdown, which was like layers of a struggle. And we can all struggle with all of these decisions and all of these questions. And of course, not being able to reflect on certain circumstances that have shaped my life, like being raped as well, you know, and all of those things were stored inside of me. And then I had that breakdown that allowed me to then pick up my pieces in a way that I wanted to choose to pick my pieces back up. So for me, that has been like the most helpful way. I would tell people, second to that was now getting the actual support that I needed. Because when I finally broke down, it was like a wake up call. I got to a place where I was suicidal. And that's why it's very important that, you know, I'm telling people, don't just talk about this, your mental health challenges. Make sure that, you know, there is no pressure to talk about it publicly. Not everybody should speak up. We'll really say that you should speak up to a mental health professional, seek professional support, um, tell people that I trust that confidence, you know, in, in your life. Yes. Um, get that yes. professional support. Yes. It is so yes. helpful because for me, that was a turning point. And that was in 2017 when I got like, so I started getting professional support, you know, at the time I had my breakdown in 2016, but continuing on to 2017, I, I did a different type of therapy that completely, you know, was perhaps the most profound yes. um, experience with yes therapy, most profound I've ever had because it opened me up to a more holistic approach to this journey of my own mental health. It opened me up to realizing that some things are not merely about there is a place for medication, there is a place for lifestyle changes, there is a place for the biology of things, and there is a place for environment. Like, I, I can't count how many times I've had to like pack my things and leave my home and travel somewhere else. Right now, I live alone, away from my family, yes. not because that's a bad thing, but because I needed an environment that complemented my internal environment that yeah. I was trying to And you need your own yeah. space. I wish you were here because you and I will work so well together, but it's not too far because I could still call you, <laughs> okay, all the time and let you be an example for many of our younger generation here because the reason why I started Pansa Pansa is because of uh, the disconnect between the young and the older generation within African immigrant community. Because the parents and the children are not connected, whereby the parents just tell the children what to do, what the value they want on them. This is what I want you to do, and you have to follow through that part of what I want you to do. To the extent that they put pressure on their children. One thing in America here is that there has to be open communication between family, whereby children should be able to express themselves. They should be able to talk about their innermost struggle of what they are going through. But many of our African immigrants who came from home continue to carry on that cultural values that they brought from home, whereby parents only tell you what to do. The only communication I'm going to have with you is to tell you A, B, C, and D. And apart from that, you are, if you say anything, express anything differently from what I'm telling you to do, you've been disrespectful, you're not following my rules, you're not embrace our culture. And all these things tend to separate children from their parents. And I started the Pansa Pansa to have an open forum for the first generation African immigrant children who were born here or brought here at a very young age. 
to express how they are feeling in the presence of the parents, of the elders of our community. And uh, I've had not only Nigerian children from Ghana, Senegal, Gambia, Ivory Coast, Mali, name it, different part of Africa. And I hold that event every year. And the same thing of what you're saying now is actually what comes out. Because as we need our space, our children also need their space. As we want to lecture and talk to our children, we should also learn to listen because all those things is very important. So I am so happy that you have this kind of wisdom in you, whereby even back in Nigeria, you could also educate many people, many parents. How do you listen to your children? And through listening, you will find out from a very young age whether something is not right. Maybe I need to seek help for my child. Maybe this child is going through different mental trauma. Or maybe there's something else coming in that I need to check with the professionals. I am so happy. I'm so glad that you are taking that initiative because that is very important, even in Nigeria. Because sometimes you just have to separate from, it's not because you don't love your parents. It's not because there's something about them, but sometimes you just need to have your own space as an individual. So I just want to ask you, is mental health stigma more common among the younger generation in Nigeria or the older generation? It's so fluid. I mean, off the top of our head, we'd say, of course, you know, the older generation do not accept it are not as willing to accept the mm-hmm. prevalence of mental health conditions mm-hmm. in Nigeria as the yes. younger generation. Mm-hmm. But that is just me saying they're not as willing to accept. That doesn't mean that yes. they don't know that it's there. It's there. Because sometimes you know, when we look back as you know this generation, the millennial generation, when we look back at our parents or our upbringing, maybe we remember one uncle or one aunt that had something that we didn't know about or mm-hmm. nobody or people refused mm-hmm. to talk about back then or mm-hmm. you know they'll shift it away so they just mm-hmm. we all somewhat can recall mm-hmm. one person or two people that you know there was a strange bit of conversation around the person or you know the circumstances in which the person lived their life or something like that and so what I've seen in you know my experience is that the older generation are aware that there is something like this However, accepting it as being what is that bit of change, you know, you're accepting something when you're in your 60s, for example, yes. begins to give new meaning to things that happened 30, 40 years ago. Yes. That's tough for yes. a lot yes. of older people. Mm-hmm. They would rather not hear that, okay, you could have taken a different action or that was supposed to have been done yes. this way and all of yes. that. Yes. They would rather not have yes. that conversation than to begin to feel like, you know, living with any form of guilt or shame or anything like that. But on the other hand, I'm also seeing a lot of older people now having a bit of a aha moment. Oh, I see. That's what happened. It makes sense now. Oh, I remember that my sister. I remember that your uncle. Oh, I remember, you know, that type of thing. We're also seeing that happening. Um, the thing with young people, younger generation, millennials, Gen Z, what is actually happening is that 
we are more willing to have open conversations about things that were previously taboo topics. Mm -hmm. That's really the core difference. The way we were born into the world or the world we were born into is significantly different from the world that our parents were born into. And not only that, the rate of change of this yeah. world yeah. currently <laughs> is a lot faster than the rate of change that they had in that time. Mm -hmm. So the truth is, there is that sense of eagerness to know what's going on around us. What is this? Where is it from? Who, is, who has it? How, and then before you know it, young people are advocating. They're doing things really quickly because the world is moving very quickly. Development is happening. Technology is happening. Policies are changing. Um, we're abolishing things. We're creating new things. We're going there. We're shifting systems and breaking tables and shackling ceilings and all of those things. So people want to move quickly. So that's really what's happening with the younger generation. It is that whether we like it or not, People are in denial. That doesn't, just because you're young, doesn't mean that you don't have some form of stigma. Because again, it is about a conditioning. And we forget how powerful conditioning can be. That sometimes you get to a place where even when the conditioning doesn't favor you, you protect it at all costs. It's almost like, you know, self-preservation mode that you go into because you were born to think that, you know, mental health conditions are spiritually linked and it's the demon and all of that because you have placed so much faith in that ideology or mm -hmm. that thought or that experience or that piece of information, it's hard for you to accept anything that negates it, you know, and because of course, another thing is that we haven't been taught to hold two opposing views in our minds at the same time. So everything is binaries. It's either good or bad. It's yes or no. It's black or white. We too are having to deal with that whether or not we're young people. But we are also having to deal with the consequence of that. So whilst overwhelmingly young people are more likely to have uncomfortable conversations, just being young doesn't negate the fact that you, we also have to grapple with certain kinds of conditionings that we have had over the period of our lives. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just that we are more likely in terms of numbers or uh, percentage, like more young people are more likely to talk about anxiety yeah. or how messaging affects their mental health or how social media affects their mental health, you know, things like that. So that's the core difference on what I see with regards to the older generation and the younger generation. And as more awareness, collective consciousness around mental health is growing around the world, what is happening is that people are finding new ways that they shut people out. They're realizing, okay, I can open a door and include people. Yes, yes. You yes, know, so yes. that bit of black and white, you know, is also beginning to dissipate for a lot of younger people who are now realizing that more people can come into your space even if their views are not exactly like yours. Maybe it's compatible, but it doesn't have to be the same. So we also see that happening um, as well. So in places where people were taught to stigmatize or discriminate, now people are challenging those notions and saying, why do I have to do that? Why can't I let the person in? Just because the person is like that, I'm also different in social so way. I don't want to be excluded in another environment. So why do I do that to somebody else? You know, like I said, not that just because we're young, then all of a sudden we're exempted from acting out our conditionings and our biases. It's just that by virtue of the environment that we are as a global environment, we are more likely to begin to question, you know, these norms and ideologies around us. Yeah, it's so important that your generation is doing that. And uh, because the older generations who has to be educated about the mistakes that they've made, 
so that we could all move together. And that's part of what I'm trying to do here. My thing is that if you continue to push we parents away, we don't want that. We want to be able to pull together so that we could work together as a community. Because no matter what, sometimes you might say, oh, I don't want to be like my parents. But then you get older, then you become much more even like your parents. And then you say, what have I done wrong? Where's all these things? Because why you never actually pull them in also into your conversation because everybody has to work together. And I hope and I wish many even older generation will come in and work with you guys in Nigeria. And I am here, I'm willing to work with you guys, even though I'm in America here, <laughs> okay? I'm actually willing to work with you guys because you could actually set example for many people here as well as people back home. This podcast is actually two of us who have it together, but because she's not available today, that's why I'm doing the interview alone. My co-host is Baba. She's actually from Ghana. So I design Pansa Pansa in such a way of an older generation, which is me, and a younger generation, which is in her mid-20s, two of us have a conversation together. As an older person, listening to her and her ideas and respecting her opinion, and she also shows respect in another way, listening to me and my ideas and opinion. And be able to tell if I'm wrong in certain things to tell me, oh, I don't think that's the way that what you just said goes, or maybe we could do it this way or do it that way. So we're modeling that through this podcast. Because like I said, there's so much break point between older generation and the younger generation. And we have to continue to educate people back home on that. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Ponza Ponza Live Podcast. We hope to have you back with us in the next episode as we continue to explore the nuances of the African immigrant experience. If you'd like to connect with us, you can email us at talk at ponsaponsa.org. That is T-A-L-K at P-A-N-S-A, P-A-N-S-A dot org. And follow us on Instagram at ponsa.ponsaforum. Until next time, remember to spread kindness and love. Thank you and take care of yourselves. Welcome to the Panza Panza Forum. In the Yoruba language, the word panza is usually injected into poetry to express an uncomfortable, uncensored and inconvenient truth. The Panza Panza Forum is candid conversations about the life of African immigrants in America as it relates to their adaptation to their new home. While some may find it easy to integrate and can balance between retaining the original African culture while accepting the culture of their new home, many continue to struggle to find a balance between both worlds. Hello and welcome to Ponza Ponza Live. This is a podcast where we discuss the lives of African immigrants and their assimilation into Western society as they raise younger generations in a country that is quite different from their own. We also explore the experiences of children of immigrants as they balance the African and Western cultures. I am your host, Baba, and together with the founder of Panza Panza and my co-host, Ms. Kemi Sariki, 
we present to you this informative, interesting, and expansive dialogue about the intricate experiences of African immigrants in America. Welcome to Pansa Pansa Live Podcast. I am your host, Kemi Seriki, and today we are honored to have a special guest all the way from Nigeria, Ms. Awa Ojeifo. Ms. Ojeifo is a former investment banker, now founder of She Rights Woman, a nonprofit organization focusing on educating and advocating for people living with mental illness in Nigeria. Our organization's mission is to eradicate the stigma placed on people with mental illness. Ms. Ojaifo is a mental health advocate, a coach, a role model for young men and women in Nigeria and throughout the diaspora, I believe. And hopefully she will also be a role model for Africans living abroad. I want to thank you for hanging out with me this morning. I'm looking forward to this great conversation. Pansa Pansa is an organization where we talk about uncomfortable conversation within African immigrant community. So I want to know what are the cultural or religious values that continue to perpetuate the stigma of mental health and mental illness in Nigeria? I think that that's really interesting because that, that is definitely a huge part of where a lot of the discrimination of the stigma comes in. There is this general idea that one cannot be religious and have a mental health condition at the same time. It's almost like we've created this idea that it's, it's, it's mutually exclusive, you know, and has to be one or the other. And I think it's generally around our ideas of religion in Nigeria, not even so much around. I mean, we already have established the fact that we already have awareness or under-awareness issue in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. So what we're thinking about now is what are those other things that contribute to that? And it is how we have, how our understanding of religion affects the way we show up to the world. And mm-hmm. that is particularly because a lot of what religion has done to Nigerians, and the reason I'm very specific about it, is to separate the religion, that is the ideology that stands by itself, Mm -hmm. and the ideology that is moving in people. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, that's a different argument entirely if we love one and the same. So it's really about, because if it were the ideology itself, then we would see that anywhere the ideology is practiced, then we should have the same effects, right? So it's not just about the ideology, it's the environment of the ideology, which includes the people. So that's what um, I'm seeing. I'm seeing this idea that religion is very literal in this environment. We take as the text said, so it is. We have been conditioned, and this again could be very linked to the popular phrase of poverty mindset or, yes. you know, stuff yeah. like that, yeah. that it is a very scarce mindset and it applies to how we own religion. It is that if I say my religion is right, then yours must be wrong. Mm-hmm. So hurry up and come to mine mm-hmm. so that, you know, all your problems can be gone and blah, blah, blah. We cannot somehow, it has been so hard for us to realize that my religion is as valid as yours. Mm-hmm. That is such a tough thing because now the reason, it may just seem like, oh, those are really profound, but how does that really affect how people think about mental health? Yeah. It happens because now you are at a place where people feel, oh, I'm a Christian. 
and that I don't know what this mental health experience means, means that you're not Christian enough. So come over to my church or come and meet my religious leader and let us show you how to be more Christ-like. Or you see Muslims tell you things like, oh, a Muslim cannot be depressed. Oh, hell no. Yes, <laughs> It's so interesting. It's also about just leaving the religion bit. Again, it's also about what we've been, that culture around our understanding of mental health. Mm-hmm. That we have been that mental health is some spiritual, you know, demon thing. So, of course, nobody wants to be associated with that. So it is considered bad. That bit of misinformation is what we are trying to change when we humanize mental health. Because it is so subtle and so subconscious that a lot of people cannot actually sit down and tell you where they got those ideology, that type of thinking from, except that. Is that all how it is? No. Is that all, you know? yeah, that is so true what you said because... One thing I always tell my people here, I say many places, Africans cannot differentiate between religious value and culture. They mix everything together. And then when you ask them, when you go deeper, you ask them, how did you come up with these things? What actually make you think this is how it is? And then that's when they say that's how it is. But that's not how it is. You have to (laughs) differentiate between both. What is culture? What is religion? And even the religion in itself that we adopted into, the people who originate those religions, sometimes they do it according to their own cultural value as well. But what could work in a place, what could not work? And like you said, when it comes to, I could easily manipulate somebody and say, it's because you don't pray enough. If you pray enough, you won't be struggling with mental illness. If you just become a Christian, you won't be suffering from all these things. I remember uh, about three years ago, I went to a mosque right here in New York. It's all bunch of African first generation. They have their own club within this mosque. They call them Muslim youth. So the conversation got into mental health and mental illness. So one of the members said, oh, when I started feeling down and depressed, I could just read certain surah in the Quran and I should be fine. Oh my God, why did she say that? Another one got up and said, if that works for you, that's fine. It doesn't work for me. I have to go and see a professional in order for me to deal with what I'm actually going through. So you speak for yourself, you don't speak for me. And then you're going in front of a religious leader who are not trained professionals when it comes to mental illness, when it comes to mental health diagnosis. Even in America here, They are now talking to many Christian pastors or clergy in mosques and churches and said they need to educate them about how to actually be able to see that somebody may be showing symptoms of mental health issue so that you won't put that as part of, okay, maybe that person, we just pray on that person, that person will be fine soon. But to be able to see that this person actually needs to see a professional. Because when somebody has physical illness, you could pray for that person to be healed, you're still going to look into a doctor who is gonna be able to treat that person. You're not just going to say, okay, you know, we're gonna pray over your cancer, you'll be cured. Or we're gonna pray over your high blood pressure is gonna be cured. You know you have to see a professional because as much as 
Mental health and mental illness is very powerful. It's what defines your humanity. You could be physically healthy, but if you are not mentally healthy, everything else cannot take place. I, as a Yoruba, Yoruba, they have a saying saying, Ori Loniche, that means your head is the source of your being. Your head is the source of, that's tradition. Your head is the source of your being. And they're always saying that you should praise that head because of the complexity of it. But then sometimes some people just forget that aspect of it. And then they just look at it from another perspective and say, you know, like you said, if you can just pray about this, everything should be fine. So it takes a lot of education for a majority of our society to understand. And, you know, we still run through the same problem here in America within African immigrant community. Because let me tell you, there's so much going on among our people here. Last week, a young boy, I think from Gambia, put a gun on his mother's head and shot her dead. Killed his own mother. One thing I want to clarify about this, people who are suffering from mental illness, most of the time, according to survey that they run, do not end up hurting other people. They're actually the victim of violence. People all usually assault them. But when you don't deal with somebody or you don't recognize that somebody is showing mental health issue and you are not looking into how can I help this person, that person will look for something to self-medicate themselves. That's when the drugs comes in. That's when they actually end up getting into a behavior that is beyond anybody else's comprehension because they have to find a relief. And in America here, there's so many drugs all over the places that they could tap into. And the moment they start using drugs, then that's where the problem comes in, even more complex than what it is. So we have a lot of all that issue. And that's where the culture and the religion comes into play. And I'm so happy that you are aware of that and you continue to actually educate many of the people in the religious circle, even the leaders. And I know it may be something difficult to talk to religious leaders in Nigeria because they might look at you or you as a woman coming to talk to me. What do you think you know? Every answer that we need is right here in the Bible. Or all the answer that we need is right here in the Quran. Is the word of God. But God also gives you the wisdom of knowledge. He gives certain people to be experts in different things, in different knowledge, in medicine, in engineering, name it, so that they could use that as a way to help you with whatever difficulties that human beings are facing in life. All this conversation is very important. So I want to ask you, how accessible is uh, psychiatric care in Nigeria? when it comes to medication, fake medication versus authentic medication, because no matter what we talked about when it comes to mental illness, there has to be certain people that they will need medication and they have to use the medication in order for them to continue to be stable. So how is the accessibility of mental health diagnosis and medication in Nigeria and treatment? 
So, uh, like you rightly said, there are people with mental health conditions that definitely, you know, need medications in order to, as part of their care and support. Yes. It's interesting because all of this is linked to systemic issues. So let me explain a couple of things that are already present within the environment in Nigeria. One of which is, like I've already said, um, Nigeria, I probably didn't mention it explicitly, but Nigeria's last piece of mental health legislation was in 1958. Wow. So that already gives you context to the fact that it is archaic, it is outdated, and it is abusive. Mm -hmm. The second thing that we need to know is because there is no single reference points, you know, for Nigeria in terms of the mental health legislation, then we cannot see things like, you know, access being made a priority or quality care, or ensuring that medications are subsidized for the people who need it the most, or they're accessible at the facilities, um, healthcare centers that people visit and things like that. Because there is no uniform policy direction that Nigeria is taking with regards to ensuring that people have the right medications and care there. So now having understood that bit of it, we can already tell that, okay, clearly there's an issue somewhere. So that is why the average Nigerian will tell you that medications are too expensive. Mm. How do I buy a tablet of medications for about $1.30? How do I sustain that in a country where we have learned that most people, majority of Nigerians are living on less than a dollar a day? Where will I get a dollar thirty to buy one single pill? So you see that the problem is multi-layered and it is very systemic as well. Mm -hmm. So whilst organizations like She Writes Women were trying to do all of these things in order to provide care and support in the meantime, digitally, we also are trying to accelerate a lot of work with our advocacy with the government and legislation, you know, exerting ourselves into these spaces because until there is that, there is no way we can scale the type of impact that we are having as far as reaching the most vulnerable and the most marginalized Nigerians, who typically are the ones who need it but cannot access it yes. the most. So it is what it is. So again, medications, there are medications, you know, if you just want to answer yes or no. Now, are those medications affordable? Are they accessible? That's a different conversation. And if a person should quickly say yes, then you have to begin to understand the level of privilege that the person has, yes. you know, in yes. a country. That means you, that person does not fit the picture of the average Nigerian. Nigerian. You know, yeah. the average Nigerian is having to go for cheaper options that, I think mean, these are options that have been rejected by first world countries yes. or democracy. Yeah countries like America, you do that medications that have had issues with maybe very, very grave side effects that people no longer use them and are tending towards other options instead. And so those are dumped here, you know, so because people cannot access the ones that have less side effects effect and things like that. So people are having to take things like amitriptyline and, you know, the effects are so grave, you know, people are saying, I cannot function or it even makes people a bit more suicidal before it makes them better things like that and when you're working again in a dysfunctional system where you know we talked about the number of psychiatrists to nigerians which is about 1.1 million nigerians to one psychiatrist you realize that at what level do you want to say oh but your psychiatrist should offer why well, your psychiatrist has seen over 500 patients a day how how is that even possible? 
you know so how do we begin so that's why i said it's hard to just look at one issue in a bit of a silo without really understanding that that issue is also an effect of something, something. but it's also affecting something else yes. that is you know in terms of medication so medications that have in nigeria are expensive they're not very accessible it's not sustainable so you see people maybe get an organization sponsor them for like maybe one two three months and maybe the organization is not able to keep that up and you know what happens when you take medications and you stop abruptly yeah that can literally to a place that yes. where you were initially and then it's not that you're taking medications and doing therapy i mean as in our organization we've had to you know interface with people who have been on medications for like 20 years without ever having an actual therapy session yes. which ideally yes. is not the case medications are supposed to be that bit of at first they're supposed to be that bit of okay how can the medication come in and alter the chemical balances whilst you're you're dealing with self-care and getting tools and dealing with social environments and getting to the root cause and all of that so you're taking your medication alongside other care medication alone is not supposed to be the all in all for mental health care it's tough I mean, if you find it, you can't sustain it. If you manage to sustain it, you don't get other aspects of it, of the mental health care process or, or the mental health care package of some sort. This is a lot of work we're doing and trying to impute certain clauses into the mental health bill that is currently before the National Assembly, which is work that we've been going back and forth with since the end of 2018 to date, trying to find ways that we can get the government to take some level of responsibility and improve the government's willpower, but also being realistic to the fact that we don't even have large budgets with regards to healthcare in Nigeria, not to now talk about what aspect of the healthcare budget is even allocated to mental health. Again, it's multi-layered and it's an issue that sadly, without that bit of leadership, that bit of governance that is that Nigeria is still lacking. We don't even see this closing significantly over the next 10 years. Yes. So except we have like a large international foundation deciding to back CSO or certain CSOs in Nigeria doing work like maybe what Shiraituman is doing with a 24-7 toll-free helpline, which, by the way, is the best 24-7 toll-free mental health helpline in Nigeria. We have been running that since October, and we're reaching people from in different states in Nigeria. The coverage, sometimes we receiving up to 500 calls in a single day. But How we're do you doing manage that? that? Really, so we're doing that with very limited funding, limited manpower. So there is a lot of opportunity for scale in doing that type of work as well. So it's, it's, it's huge because we're doing such amazing work, but in a very limited and dysfunctional environment. Environment. And so limited resources. Limited resources, yeah. Very limited resources. And it was being able to be honest and recognize that and really be able to scale accordingly, but also be able to, a lot, a huge part of our work is looking for resources outside of the country to help us continue yes. to scale the work yes. that we do yes. as well. You know, because of course, when you think about $1, if somebody donates $1, it's different from when somebody donates one naira, for example. Yes, yes, yes. So it's hard to separate mental health, the, men, the issues within the mental health space in Nigeria from the general issues that Nigeria is facing with regards to governance and economy and poverty. It is so sad. I remember listening to BBC, I think about two years ago, and they were talking about medication for mental illness in third world country, mm -hmm. that 
many of the medication, even if it's available, is diluted. The potent level of the medication, it is so low to the extent that, let's assume somebody in America, we take 100 milligrams of something. In third world country, like in different parts of Africa or many of these other countries in the world, they will give them 200 or even 300 milligrams so that it could become effective. Because one thing with America, when medication are coming in, they make sure to find out is a reputable companies that is shipping some of this medication here when it comes to that the generic medication, the pointed level of it is up to the level of the original ones. In a country like Nigeria that nobody is checking, any pharmaceutical company from India that has the potent level of effectiveness of the medication that is so low, who easily ship it down there because nobody is checking on anything. That's really mind-boggling. That is it's, really- it's, it's sad on so many levels. So that's why we have other epidemics on our hands, like we have the drug and substance use yes. Um, yes. on our hands as well, because it's related, right? Not just in terms of the mental health, but because when we start to understand that your mental health is very much linked to the environment and the, uh, the circumstances that you experience within your environment, it now makes sense to you that if you have no healthy outlet, if your healthcare system is not fixed, it's not holistic, if it doesn't appeal to the average Nigerian, that the majority of Nigerians, by the way, then who are you really catering to? Yes. So now yes. you have this large population of people, about 60% of Nigerians, and then we are taking them and they don't have an outlet. They are not making money. They don't have access to jobs. They are living, you know, in very harsh housing conditions, no access to clean water, diseases and all of that. And then you are telling them, oh, you know, there is no mental health at primary health care level. Mm-hmm. And then you're telling them to first locate some general hospital or some psychiatric hospital somewhere that is like, 20 kilometers away or something like that mm-hmm. or you're, you're telling them that it costs like more than what they earn a day to buy one tablet but you're going to need 30 of those tablets in a month yeah so food is much yeah, okay. at least because i mean you barely have food to eat but you're telling me that i should take some drug so. of something that yeah. i i don't even have yeah. enough knowledge about yeah. but you're telling me to take some drug yeah. That you cannot prove to me is on a paper. Yeah. You know, come on. It, it is so much. And not only the me- even the medication when they take it here, they have to be on certain diets. There's certain mm. diet that they have to be on. So that's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. It's more holistic that way. Yeah, that, you can that have way. some mental health issue, more in more civilized healthcare systems. You yeah. can have a mental health issue and they ask you to see a dietitian or nutritionist. No, and they ask you yeah. to see family therapist and mm-hmm. yeah. because they even tell you, you know, they recommend like maybe yoga studios or physical activity yeah. center yeah. for you to visit so and things yeah. like that. So they're trying to holistically yeah. find a way to address the for issue. Treatment, yes. But we just can't afford to do that here because there is a capacity deficit. There deficit, is funding yeah. deficit. Yes. There is awareness deficit. And there is a deficit of political will as well. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That is so true. Oh, my God. So on sexual abuse and assault on women, even children in Nigeria, how has the society progressed in terms of prosecuting the offenders? and challenging the stigma associated with the victim of the act. Women and children Mm -hmm. suffer from sexual abuse, but uh, men, even the victimized boys, 
that we don't even talk about. So how has that take place in Nigeria? How have they been able to address all those issues? Sexual violence conversations are, the good thing is that we're having the conversations now more Mm-hmm. than, you know, maybe 10, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. We're also seeing that Nigerians' VAP Act is gathering some momentum, albeit slowly in certain states in terms of domestication. Yes. Domestication yes. of the actual act, which is the violence against, I think, uh, persons prohibition, the, the VAP Act anyway. It's, it's really interesting because what I see with regards to sexual violence in Nigeria is really about when you put up people, we tend to forget that the people who get into positions of power or governance are really just a product of the environment as well. So when you go to them and you tell them to implement something or to these are our rights and all of that, sadly, they cannot always understand you at, at the whim because they are from an environment, which is what we live in, that's pretty much encourages by virtue of lack of punitive measures that encourages a certain group of people to have power over another group of people sexually and so we're seeing that of course sexual abuse happens to men and women boys and girls however the numbers have shown us that it is more prevalent uh, that men are the perpetrators and women are the victims this as well Uh, we are seeing we're definitely seeing more conversations happening we are definitely seeing states or three states having more conversations around sort of like sensitizing legislators or government on the act and the reasons and, you know, consequences and sexual violence and, you know, what it is, the best practice, global standards, things like that. And then we're seeing domestication come up, you know, more and more. Again, like I said, it's really slow. It's one thing to have a law that's an act and then it's another thing to domesticate it. And then it's another thing to have the structures and systems in place to ensure accountability around the act. You know, so you have domesticated it. But have you been able to train your law enforcement and all of the officials that have to interact with certain processes and structures that are around maybe the reporting of cases or allegations, handling, investigations, evidence gathering what is that system really and how much can be done in every state in nigeria how much can we beat our chest and say you know aside lagos which is always what people mistakenly generalize as nigeria which lagos quite frankly is an outlier in terms of these things lagos has the cso's lagos has you know whenever there isn't a, a law somewhere that governs the entire country lagos will go ahead and create their own state law you know and things like that so lagos is perhaps in this context a lot more progressive you yeah. know as far as that is concerned we don't see that access to resources across board in other states i mean we're talking about statistics states here in one state to generalize across board is just one in 36. Yes. You know, and the truth is, and that's not to say other states are not catching up. Ekiti has done some work regarding that. Kaduna continues to try and put a lot of harsh measures in place in terms of persecution and you know things like that with regards to perpetrators that are found guilty. That's yeah. not really I would say Kaduna is really leading. I know Bauchi domesticated late last year or announced it. I know that the organizations are working in Kano to see what they can do regarding sensitization and more work with regards to domestication and the actual implementation yes. of things like yes. that. 
But I would say it's not enough states that are doing work. It's one thing, like I said, it's one thing to domesticate. It's another thing to have the system in yeah. place to have precedence to actually go from allegations mm-hmm. to evidence mm-hmm. and to prosecution. Yeah. You know, we need a lot more precedence. Nigeria has not been able to persecute. At least in, the last I checked, at least 1% has not been able to get to a 1% rate of persecution of the total number of cases that are presented as far as sexual violence is concerned. Oh. There is a lot of work that needs to be done, but mm. there is a lot of being done by quite a number of CSOs in Nigeria, including yeah. Shiraz Woman. We do that in our third area of work, which is called intersectional solutions, where we typically do that work in partnership with organizations, local organizations in Nigeria. Okay. And currently, you know, we are allies of okay. right now, a U.S. civil movement that advocates for the rights of sexual violence survivors. And together with RISE since 2019, you know, we have, RISE has done fantastic work. And we've just really been partnering with them and just being at the table with them at the United Nations level in ensuring that the United Nations can pass mm-hmm. uh, somewhat of a UN resolution. Mm-hmm. A survivor's bill of rights that can be adopted across member states of the United Nations. So on that level, we're working internationally with just supporting rights to do the fantastic work with the United Nations. But locally, we're also strategically here and there working with sexual violence um, awareness organizations. And that's partly because a lot of our calls that we have received, I remember between 2016 and early and 2017, we saw that seven in 10 of the women who made contact with rights women Yes. Where we um, yeah. had some form of experience, um, mm-hmm. sexual violence experience. And we have seen that more in the last year. We saw that our helpline calls and counseling and therapy that we had, we saw about 40%, wow. 40% directly with you know, wow. cases of sexual assault. And we have also, so that, that tells us a lot about the fact that, especially for women, when you have incidences of mental health, more often than not, it can be linked to a sexual violence experience at yes. one point in their life or the other. Yes. So it is definitely yes. a cause that yes. is very, somewhat like comorbid or intersects very perfectly into the mental health space as well. You do so much. I mean, for I keep saying it. I, for a short time that you've been uh, involved, you started the She Writes Woman and I give you another 10 years, you will globally take over Nigeria and neighboring country to continue to do the amazing work that you're doing to eradicate wow, the stigma against uh, mental illness and also to continue to push for treatment, the appropriate treatment for people. And also people who are also victim of uh, sexual offense and uh, they experience all this injustice on the continent. I just want to touch basis for we African abroad. Migration involves three major set of transition. When we migrate here, there's a change in personal ties. No more family member, no more neighbors. In America here, you could be living, everything is self-contained. Your bathroom, everything is right there. The person next door to you, you don't even know. If they say good morning to you, you are lucky. (laughs) You say good morning to each other, you're lucky. So those family ties is missing for us here. And the challenges of different culture that we find ourselves, because in America, your culture is within your house. The dominant culture outside there, you have to battle with it. So that tie is disconnected. Then we talk about a social network also from Nigeria, from our homeland is limited here. 
even you might have African immigrant community, many of you don't live within the same neighborhood. Your job timetable is different from one to the other. If you go to the same mosque or the same church, that's maybe where you see one another. So that community connection is limited of what they can provide for you because the demand in America is completely different from the demand that you meet back home. And then there's also another shift for us in America, the social economic status. Many people from home who may have a big position when they settle back in America, you tend to start almost from the bottom because you have to find a way to be able to make ends meet. Let's assume you're a bank manager in Nigeria. You can't come here and become a bank manager in America. You might have to get a minor job to be able to sustain yourself. So those are the adjustments that we have to make. And all those things actually affect how we cope when it comes to issue of uh, diagnosis or recognizing that you're going through emotional challenges that may eventually lead to your mental health issue. So the survival take precedence over other things of just making ends meet, making the family goals is most of the number one. How do we parent? How do we make sure there's food on the table? How do we make sure the children goes to school? They do everything because our challenges here is completely different. We might have every necessary amenities, like there's water, there's uh, 24 hours electricity. But then the social connection is missing. The family connection, the uh, community connection is missing. You might have to find a way to connect with people who don't even understand your culture or speak your language. So those are the issues that we go through here. So when somebody is actually experiencing mental health issue. Sometimes we might say, let me see what I can do to be able to help. Or you might not even, that's if you recognize it. If you don't recognize it, you could forget about it. Part of our barrier is interpretation or reaction to symptoms of mental illness. We might say, okay, maybe this person is showing certain symptoms whereby they might be depressed. We may not understand what depression is. Because people showed symptoms of depression is shown in different ways. Some people may lay down and sleep all the time and cry. And some people may act out. So some of us might say, well, you know, let's just pray about it. And we pray it away, which is connected with the religion, which is connected also with the culture. Sometimes we might seek help from professional and non-professional person. And we may not understand how do we follow up with those help even though the services are available, how do you continue to follow up with the treatment that is being provided for you? Like I said before, the medication might be there. Some of this medication, you might take it and it has side effects. And you look at the side effect and say, you know what, this medication is not allowing me to get up and do my work, it's making me lazy. And you might not even understand, I need to ask my doctor, what are the side effect of this medication, how long will the side effect take place? It's going to go down. All these systems will eventually go down. We might not understand that. As a result, we just stop taking the medication. Or maybe you have to talk to a psychologist, a psychiatrist, or a therapist who doesn't even understand your cultural background. And they're telling you certain way is the way you have to deal with your emotion. 
okay, maybe you need to do some yoga. Maybe you need to learn breathing. Maybe, you know, you talk about what are you telling me to learn breathing? It's something that that person may not be able to explain to you that you could understand it better culturally. So those are some of the issues. Then we talk about issue of stigma and prejudice, stereotype. As a result of the misinformation, when it comes to mental health, within the community where we live. So that stigma continues the same way they have it back home, the same way it continues to ingrain into our beliefs here as well, even though we are all abroad. So we still continue to carry that. In uh, America here, we have diverse group of Africans here. You have some of the people whereby language is also a barrier. We have many French speaking Africans here who came in from French speaking countries in Africa, whereby that language is a major barrier. Even you have some even English speaking person also who may not understand or be able to even question the healthcare provider. Let's assume you go and see a psychiatrist and they're telling you all these things. You know how the culture is, you know, the professional knows the best. You don't question. You don't ask anything. So whatever they give you, that's what you take. And you just keep moving. Because that's part of the culture that we brought from home. All those things that I lay down is part of the barrier that we are going through in this country as Africans. We have not really analyzed, like you said before, you look at you know, yourself, you said, what am I doing wrong? Let me divorce my thinking from the general population of the community where I belong and see myself, what is it that I'm doing wrong? So many of us have not reached up to that level. And in America here, many of us, even though there's a difference between coming here and assimilate, you take what works in your culture, you hold on to it. You take the one that doesn't work, you push it on the side. Many of our immigrant community they have not really assimilated. Because some people think assimilation means, oh, I go to school, I graduated from university, I'm already working. But then you continue to mingle among your group of people all the time. Because when you have to expose yourself to another set of community that is different from yours, you have to learn new things. One thing that I see in America here, I'm not sure whether you guys implement it or implement as a way or form of another treatment is a support group. Uh huh. So if somebody said, let's assume in America you have bipolar support group specifically on people who are diagnosed with those. You have depression support group. You have anxiety support group. You have a attention deficit disorder support group. <laughs> I don't know whether you heard about ADHD. No, of course, absolutely. Uh-huh. And we, we actually even started with support groups as Sharaites Woman. That, yes. was, that was like our second thing. As, after we started the helpline in 2016 initially, we started doing support groups, but it was a more of a, a general support group, a support group as against a specialized support group. Yes. So we thought that we would have different themes, different months, for example, yeah. where maybe one yes. month was talking about another month was talking about something yes. else. We started a support group, so that now we're now digital because, of course, COVID and yeah, other COVID things. And everything, yes. That's yes. what we have as a safe place in Nigeria yes. as a community. Yes. Uh, yeah. So it's a good thing because when you are in a support group of the same diagnosis, you could exchange 
what is it that some of the symptoms that you're feeling? You could empower one another. You could understand, okay, what medication are you taking? What works for you? What does not work for you? One thing that I've seen in America here with uh, many of the psychiatrists, they also have a, a thing whereby before they prescribe you medication, if your insurance will cover it, they will do something like a DNA test to see which medication actually work with your system because psychiatric medication is as if it's a try and error to see what actually work with your system, what doesn't work with your system. So they usually just do that test to see what medication work with you. And the moment you keep up with the medication, you're fine. You have many different professionals in America here from different races who are diagnosed with, I mean, intense mental illness. And they take their medication, they do what they have to do. And they're a functioning member of the society. How many in Nigeria, those who could have been functioning, those who could have been contributed to development of the country, but because of the lack of care that is needed to target people who are suffering from this diagnosis, they could not contribute because the society, the government, were not making any provision for it this group of people, not to talk of even apart from people who are suffering from mental illness, even the general population in itself. So like I was saying, those are the barriers that we in America that we go through in this country. Even though we have access to quality care, the education is also there, but there's so many other things that comes our way. So our for you are a good example of someone who was diagnosed with mental illness and you are thriving, you are blooming, you are prospering, you are helping others in Nigeria who are suffering from mental illness, promoting mental illness awareness, and you are also destigmatizing mental illness through your own personal experience. What advice would you have for Africans in the diaspora dealing with mental illness or have family member who are diagnosed with mental illness? What advice do you have? Just because it denies something doesn't mean it's going to go away. Yes. Sadly, that's the way we have been conditioned to, to think about many of our problems as Africans. Yes. Is that we have been taught to just sweep it under the carpet. Hopefully, by the time you sweep it under the carpet, then you don't see it anymore. So that means it, it goes away. It actually doesn't go. It just, mm-hmm. you have removed it from your immediate awareness. And we don't realize that because you remove something from your immediate awareness, is that you have actually taken away your power over it because now you don't see it. So now you think, oh yeah, so it doesn't affect me anymore. Actually, it's affecting you in ways that you don't even have that awareness of. Yes. You know, yes. I know a lot of people have had issues that they dealt with in terms of childhood trauma or, you know, the, the consequences of certain things that happened to them in, the, in their younger years. And just because they were told to get over it, just stop it, let it go, you know, it has yes. passed, move on, you yes. know, all of that. And that is really what we do by sweeping things on the carpet. It didn't stop the fact that it was showing up in their relationships. So it was hard for them to cultivate and sustain healthy relationships. It didn't stop that from interfering with maybe their workplace, you know, their ability to show up at work or to maintain, you know, long hours of attention or things like that. It didn't stop that from happening. What it just did was that it was affecting them, but it didn't have any power over it because they had outsourced the power. And now they have swept it under the carpet. Yes. So yeah. for anybody who is listening, I would say you, we have to open, like, just get the carpet away. Let's begin to address the issues. Yes. You know, if yes. it was in the way you were brought up, 
then we need to start having honest conversations about how parenting has affected the way many adults have become. If it is about some traumatic life experience, like maybe sexual assault or, you know, even just beating, physical beating that we were given yeah. as kids, like that have far-reaching consequences on us as adults. If it is some um, experience of with maybe divorce or a heartbreak or betrayal or even grief and loss and how that has shaped or colored the way we show up, those are things that we want to begin to interrogate. And then by the time we have awareness of those things, that is where we begin to have the power, take back our power to ask ourselves, so what next? Because what tends to happen is that we just go there and we're like, oh yeah, how do we deal with it? And I'm like, "Mm -mm, stop, stop, stop. You don't even know what you're dealing with yet. Because to do that work of really digging through and unraveling, you know, removing the carpet and digging through all of that heap of stuff is very uncomfortable. Yes. It's uncomfortable. We have to deal with some things that are, perhaps we would rather not deal with or we'd rather not talk about. How can our listener connect with you online and donate to your great cause yeah. of this yeah. project you do? Um, thank you so much. So first off, if the person is Nigerian, living mm. in Nigeria, I would say we've, we've talked about some pretty deep things today. So in case they want to call to talk about, you know, they are feeling like maybe triggered or, you know, they want to call to maybe talk to a counselor or something, mm-hmm. You can call toll-free 24-7, so it's not you don't have to worry about credit or whatever time of the day. Um, you can call 0800-800-2000. So I'll just say it again. It's 0800-800-2000, which is 0800-800-2000. And that is a 24-7 toll-free hotline for Nigeria uh, with regard to your mental health. And then, of course, you know, from there, you can, you can even decide, you know what, maybe what I need is not to talk to a counselor. I kind of know I just need teletherapy. I want to have consistent, I want to touch base with the therapist consistently. Then you can go to calendly.com forward slash therapy SWW. The SWW at the end is in capital letter. Every other thing is, is irrelevant with regards to the case. So that is calendly.com forward slash therapy then capital letter S, capital letter W, and capital letter W as well. So that way you can just go straight and book a session with the therapist and you will be contacted and, you know, you will be told, you'll get an email confirming your, your appointment. And just like that, like about 20 or 30 minutes of your session, you get a link and you just jump on and you have a confidential uh, conversation with a therapist. And of course, if you want to follow us across social media, we are at She Writes Woman. That is S that is S H W scratch that S H E W R I T E S W O M A N. So we're on LinkedIn, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter. And of course, you know, if you want to donate, uh, I mean, that's one of the best places to see the daily impact and communication with our work. And if you want to donate, you can just go to shirightwoman.org forward slash donate. You mm-hmm. can see that is the link you can donate to donate it to. So thank you so much. So from the quote of She Writes Woman website, I like this quote that you wrote on your website. It said, if I don't speak up, one more person have to live in shame and fear. This statement is a very powerful statement. Sharing your experience with others, give them the courage and comfortability to share their own story as well. You are 
giving people voice to speak up, to normalize open conversation on mental illness and sexual assault. As a result, you are shredding away the stigma associated with uncomfortable dialogue. I really want to thank you for this wealth of knowledge you brought to our audience regarding the importance of mental health and mental illness. I really thank you. So thank you for coming. Thank you so, for, so much. Uh, for closing, thank you for tuning in mm-hmm. to this episode of Pansa Pansa Live Podcast. We hope you have us back with you next episode. We continue to explore the nuances of African immigrant experience. If you'd like to connect with us, you can email us at talk at pansapansa.org or follow us on Instagram at talktagram at pansa.pansaforum. Until next time, remember to spread kindness and love. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Ponza Ponza Live Podcast. We hope to have you back with us in the next episode as we continue to explore the nuances of the African immigrant experience. If you'd like to connect with us, you can email us at talk at ponsaponsa.org. That is T-A-L-K at P-A-N-S-A. P-A-N-S-A dot org and follow us on Instagram at pansa.pansaforum. Until next time, remember to spread kindness and love. Thank you and take care of yourself.